Hi, I'm Garth Tanner. I'm Jamie Wincup. I'm James Courtney. Tony Delberto. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. Hi, I'm Todd Kelly. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. It's your weekly dose of V8 news on the V8 Insiders. Now, here's your host, Craig Revell. Craig grabs his first victory. For all the efforts this year of uh, you know, Team Vodafone to put in, to finally not only have a victory but to have, have a 1-2 was pretty special. Jamie keeps the championship lead. It's, it's a battle, it always is. There's always uh, five or six cars, it always comes down to the wire. And what next for the car of the future? That's all coming up today as the red lights go out on another edition of the V8 Insiders. Take in the V8 of the races. You watch the action on TV. Now, read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. This news update is brought to you by V8X Magazine. Log on to the official V8X Magazine Facebook page for your chance to win some great prizes. Here's the news brought to you by Nobrac Carbon Fibre Products. Triple Eight had the perfect start to Craig Lowndes' birthday weekend, managing his tyres to perfection to take the win in Sunday's Race 13 of the Championship. Uh, going into that last night with a lot of confidence knowing that we had a green tyre and, uh, and of course again we had to drive the car straight, look after it uh, and then of course uh, as I'm trying to push on, JJ's trying to make sure that I'm going slow enough to look after the tyre. Our concerns were, I'm sure, like everyone, making sure that we didn't have a late safety car because um, really, to be honest, I wouldn't have had anything left to fight with. I, I basically gave it all to, to, dip, to do what I've just done. Jamie Wincup was pleased with his weekend, winning on Saturday and second on Sunday behind his teammate Lowndes. All in all, I had a, uh, a extremely quick car and uh, did the best with what I had uh, all weekend. Wing Cup has control of the championship out in front. Oh, for sure, for sure. We're only in the early days. Um, no, it's, it's a battle, it always is. There's always uh, five or six cars, it always comes down to the wire. Um, this year will be no different. We've just got to, uh, all just got to stay in contention till, uh, till that last race. Will Davison was deflated after Sunday's race when things just didn't go his way. Extremely hot conditions, very slippery track, soft tyres. Uh, yeah, we, you know, we, we just didn't have the cars right in these conditions. The one lap balance was just brilliant. Um, but uh, yeah, we you know, went searching after yesterday's race, sort of outside our normal window with the setup, because you know, we knew yesterday's car wasn't good enough. Uh, we actually made it worse today, but you know, we had to try something. Greg Murphy has returned home following back surgery. The New Zealander had to watch while his Pepsi Max Commodore had its share of difficulties at the hands of Kelly Racing's enduro driver, David Russell. Yeah, bitterly disappointing with how, how this weekend went. I think, think we showed a lot of potential to do well. And um, yesterday's race was just, yeah, it was crazy in the fact that I was blindsided with that incident with um, Caruso that all came about and you know I was disappointed with that and then in today's race we made up 10 spots in the opening laps and everything was working out really well the pace was good and um, yeah look it came out of the the last turn made a move on Brighton look I haven't had a look at the footage but you know I'm certain that uh, he had a lot of he he had um, enough room there and to me it just felt like I got turned into the fence. 
Jonathan Webb has conceded that finding a major sponsor in 2012 is now very unlikely. He has turned his attention to securing funding for the 2013 season. Last weekend, Webb ran a V8 Knights livery on the Techno Autosports car, whilst the second entry for Michael Patrese returned to that all-white livery. The car of the future debate has started up again, with only two months away from what was supposed to be the first official test, teams are still waiting for some key components to be finalised. There's now been some calls for the program to be postponed, but with Nissan working hard to enter the series next year, it is now almost impossible for V8 supercars to change the timeframes. We talk more on the Car of the Future controversy in this week's roundtable. And finally, Gary Rogers says that unless he can find a new manufacturer to come on board in the next few weeks, he'll be campaigning a Commodore in next season's series. Rogers, who had been linked with Chrysler, was hoping that the Car of the Future would bring his team a chance to regain some of the manufacturer funding that they lost when Holden pulled out a few years ago. But at this time, there's been nothing on the horizon, so we'll be staying with Holden in 2013. And that's the news for Nobrac Carbon Fibre Products. Check out the entire range at www.nobrac.com.au. After the break, Ben Beasley and Peter Norton join me for an extended controversy corner when we return on the V8 Insiders. News on the V8 Insiders is brought to you by the official V8X Magazine Facebook page. Sign up and keep in touch with V8 Supercars. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now, read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. The views expressed on V8 Insiders, including the panellists and guests, do not reflect those of the network, Thunder Media, sportradio.com.au or V8X magazine. Any publication or rebroadcast of the show without the expressed written permission of Thunder Media is strictly prohibited. Hi, I'm Lee Holdsworth. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Uh, Joining me this week from Fox Sport News, it's Ben Beasley. Good evening, Ben. Good evening, Craig. How are you going? I'm very well, and uh, hopefully you haven't got the dreaded return to South Lurgy for too much longer, Ben. As Peter Norton from Inside Motorsport joins me, Peter, well, no Lurgy for you, and you're going to a colder climb. Yes, a little trip to Darwin was fabulous, but uh, yeah, back to the grind now. Now, of course, uh, you went up on the GAN there, Ben, and that's an experience in itself. Absolutely. It's 3,000 kilometres from Adelaide through Alice Springs up to Darwin. The GAN's very famous in Australia, but not a lot of people have really done it. And it's one of those bucket list things that, you know, everyone should do, and the opportunity to end it with a motor race was was, was um, the bonus for it. Went up there with Tim Slade from Lucky 7 Racing and Irwin Racing's Lee Holsworth, and it was a great experience to, to go straight up the centre of Australia, see the amazing change of the outback and what you see, few hours in Alice Springs and a few hours in Catherine and really get to see the outback of Australia which not so many people see including myself you know I grew up on in Canberra and lived in Sydney and now in Melbourne and you know to go up the middle of Australia is just 
quite unbelievable. Mm. And I would imagine on the trip as well, you got uh, plenty of time to talk to those two guys in particular about how they see their season unfolding. Tim, really embedded into SBR, but Lee's still trying to find his feet there. Yeah, I think um, Tim has really, you know, established himself. It was interesting to see a guy who, you know, two years ago was really trying to make his mark in the sport. Now he's firmly entrenched, uh, it's fair to say, at Stone Brothers, which is um, working out for him very well. Uh, Lee is, like you say, you know, he's going along pretty good, but has very high expectations about his um, really upcoming second half of the year with Stone Brothers to really start to turn it on. Uh, he has teammates in Shane Van Gisbergen and Tim Slade who have got podiums this year. Lee wants to get right up there as well. The Stone Brothers cars are running fifth, sixth and seventh in the championship with um, um, Slade in seventh, Lee in sixth and Van Gisbergen in fifth. So it was a good little piece to see how the chemistry was working between the two guys. They, they get along very, very well and uh, always trying to learn off each other as well. Also interesting to see that they're, they're, to spend three days with these two guys, their whole life really is motor racing. They have uh, some other interests outside, you know, mainly to do actually with their, with their fitness. They like to talk about, you know, how, what they do for their training regime. And Tim even took his road bike on the train with the trainer so he could, he could pedal away for a couple of hours a day, and, and Lee got into that as well. Um, but they were really focusing on the race ahead. Ahead, you know, the opportunity to ride the train gave them a little bit of welcome distraction. But anything outside of that was just focusing on the race and what they were going to do with the cars last weekend and the previous week they'd done a test and they were still talking about that. So, when you meet motor racing drivers at the very elite level, it really just absolutely occupies their time their, their whole life lee's also got a baby on the way so that's also happening in his life and they have those things but it's not like a normal person would have a number of different interests these guys you know their interests outside of motorsport really is their family and a little bit of um fitness but i'd probably say 95 percent of their their mind is taken up with uh, with motor racing and V8 supercars and trying to get to the front. Mm. And by comparison, Peter Norton, your trip back there, although it was long, was nothing in comparison. No, no, just the standard flights and uh, you know, red eye thrown in there, the standard sort of things that we go through to enjoy our sport. Mm. Now, of course, uh, what you did enjoy was Triple Eight, and they had some sort of resurgence there, Peter, with winning on Saturday with Jamie Winkup and Sunday, the old man, Craig Lowndes. Uh, yes, um, uh, it, uh, Craig Lowndes enjoys, I think it was his, th- his 38th birthday uh, this week, so uh, calling him an old man is a, a good reference point there. Um, yes, I think a lot of people thought that FPR were going to uh, uh, maintain their little bit of dominance this season uh, up there in the top end, and in qualifying they absolutely did. They abs- they had a, a perfect uh, uh, solution for a, a, you know, a, a one-lap uh, qualifying run and also the shootout with Will Davison taking poles on both days. But when it came to the longer races and managing a, a tyre strategy across the whole weekend, Triple uh, Eight really did uh, rise to the top and uh, looked as though they're back to the, the dominance that they enjoyed last year. Mm. Ben, when you hear a team saying, oh, we're relishing the title fight, that means they're not enjoying the dominance they had at the beginning of the year, and that's what you got from FPR on Sunday. Yeah, the interesting thing was, I think Sunday's race was more interesting when there was this early safety car and only a handful of cars didn't pit. And two of those cars were the 888 cars. And almost when you saw that happen, 
you could see almost every other team up and down pit lane going, what do they know that we don't? And right there and then, they, they started, they controlled the race. And that's what FBR had been doing in the previous, uh, you know, few rounds, really controlling the race. And they, re- they never had that control at all at the weekend. They had some speed. There was also the part on the Sunday when it got down to these, uh, the, the final round of pit stops where the fuel window was relatively quite long. And then Wing Cup was the first car to pit. And then literally in the next lap, and they didn't have to, FPR reacted. And that's probably the first time they've had to react in many races. It usually would be the other, in, in recent times, they would be the ones who would be pitting and everyone would be reacting to them. So I think Winterbottom could have gone another 10 laps, which maybe in the end, if they had taken that strategy and had the fresher tyres towards the end, he may have may have been able to run down Wing Cup much in the same way that Lowndes ran down um, Jamie at the end as well. You know, Lowndes was able to put on a fresh set of tyres at the end. I'm pretty sure uh, Winterbottom would have been in the same situation because they were so good in qualifying they could save their tyres. But they were more concerned, as it turned out, to be more concerned from a championship point of view with what Wing Cup was doing, not necessarily what Lowndes was doing. So... Um, for, for FPR not to win the, ra- the races, they were disappointed. For Davison, you know, especially on the Sunday to finish, uh, I think sixth position, that was that was quite a big drop for them because up until that point, outside of his you know failures to finish uh, through those couple of accidents in Perth and then also in uh, Phillip Island, he was always on the podium this year. So that that's a big down for them. But uh, you know, all things. That track was very difficult on the weekend. It was very, very hot. The, the, um, the soft tyre went away very quickly. And where I think Triple Eight's concentration was more so on making sure they had very good race cars, FPR was also trying to make sure they had a good qualifying car and maybe got lost a little bit in between that. Mm. It was really interesting because on Sunday, Craig Lowndes was uh, saying before the race, Peter, it is hotter than yesterday. These poor tyres are just not going to last. Um, yes, the, uh, it was a fascinating tyre strategy across that whole weekend. And uh, as Ben was saying, it was a, a huge stamp of confidence uh, early in that Sunday race when everyone else was pitting. You know, the, the usual thing, the generally accepted thing to do with a two-car team is that you split your options, that you uh, have one car cover everyone else uh, and you keep one car to the, the predetermined strategy. Uh, you know, Triple Eight, they ignored what everyone else was doing and they just stuck to their strategy. Uh, one thing that I found remarkable was uh, I was in the Triple uh, Eight garage at the end of qualifying and seeing uh, Lowndes jump out of the car and he was just beaming with the qualifying result he had, which was only six. But he knew that he'd done it using the, uh, you know, sticking to the tyre plan. He knew that he achieved okay, uh, an okay qualifying position with that brand new set of tyres ready to be that final card to play late Sunday afternoon. Um, so, yeah, that, there was a, a team with confidence about their strategy and they perfectly executed it. Mm. Now, of course, uh, all's not lost for performance racing, although, uh, you know, we talk about them having a disappointing weekend. They had podiums on both days and, uh, it's, and once again, Dave Reynolds was showing great speed. Ben, it looks like that we've just genuinely now got two teams at the top of their game. My personal opinion is Wing Cup is still the best driver out there, but everyone's getting closer. 
they are getting closer. The, the interesting thing was outside of those two teams, in Saturday and Sunday's results were really, you know, um, flipped on their head. And, and the team that, or the, in particular the driver who was outstanding on Sunday and was lost in probably all that because Lowndes did such a great job was Michael Caruso from the, uh, the Gary Rogers Fujitsu team. How he was able to stall on the grid from the second row, not get cleaned up, but then ultimately what that did was that put him on a different strategy because they had to try something different to get to the front. And he was in a strategy that was, um, I guess, very similar to... Uh, there was uh, Michael Patrice, he was also on it. But again, somehow he was able to come through the field each time and look after his tyres. So that was very, very interesting. But it was just real flash-in-the-pan stuff, like you say. You know, That's by far been their best race this year. And if you have a look up and down the grid teams have had that it's just that that ultra consistency to be at the front which is really what triple eight and Ford performance racing has done now we're sort of heading into this middle part of the year we've got to go to townsville and then things could change or or that sort of thing but in terms of the real championship fight you, you can't look past Ford performance racing or triple eight and like you said the third car in the Ford performance racing trio david reynolds he had a good weekend he qualified towards the front he's sort of been doing that but then just falling away in the races through through different reasons, whether it's driver error, you know, pulling into the pits at Phillip Island and the fuel rig was split, just a whole lot of little things. He had a very consistent weekend and finished, you know, in well inside the top ten, and that's what he really needed, and I think he's, he can build his confidence from there. Hmm. What um, Ford Performance Racing really need David Reynolds to do is get himself in between Mark Winterbottom, Will Davison, and then the Triple Eight cars. They need him to start to act as this rear gunner that they ideally need to put him in between, you know, the factory, the two, the two leading factory Ford cars and the Triple Eight cars, because that's going to what that's what's going to ultimately help, um, you know, whether it's Winterbottom or um, Davison to try to hold off the Triple Eight charge. Mm. We need to take a break here on the Vad Insiders. Plenty more right after this. Controversy Corner is next when we return with more on the V8 Insiders. Find out more about your favourite supercar teams and drivers when we go inside further on the V8 Insiders. You've taken the V8 to the races. you watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. Showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers, V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 Supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 Supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Shane Van Gisbergen. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders. Joining me, Ben Beasley and Peter Norton. And uh, guys, uh, just before we wrap up Hidden Valley, well, the racing, I have to say... Gee, you feel for David Russell, don't you? The Pepsi Max Commodore, Peter, just uh, in in trouble in both races. And uh, certainly it sounds like Pepsi are calling for a, a name driver to jump into that car up in Townsville now. Yes, it was uh, quite heartbreaking for young David Russell. Um, in some respects, it was his uh, you know, big opportunity to join the, the main game in a, you know, a normal weekend, not just as a, an endurance driver, and for him to uh, show what he can uh, what he can do out there on the track. 
Unfortunately, his uh, qualifying was uh, you know, affected by the, the usual things. Of, uh, no, I think it's partly inexperience of uh, you know, when to get out onto the track and how to find some clear track to put in his own time. He commented to me that uh, you know, he was with the tyre situation and the Darwin track, he really only, only had one lap where the, everything was at their best to get that qualifying time. And in his qualifying lap, uh, he had other cars slowing down and getting in his way. Um, so uh, a bit of inexperience there of how to deal with that situation. And uh, in future, maybe he can do a bit better. Uh, in the races, um, he was in the wrong place at the wrong time or, or picking a fight with the wrong person and uh, only lasted a couple of laps over the, the both races. Um, he also explained to me that because he is, uh, is uh, a designated co-driver for the endurance races, that actually puts a cap on how many races he can do as a fill-in driver. Um, I think that's you know, part of the reason, and the other reason is that Pepsi Max need a, uh, a real name driver you know, to raise the profile and, and get some return on their marketing spend, uh, which means, uh, unfortunately, uh, David uh, probably won't be back in that seat to uh, try to do better. And, Ben, that's one of the catch-22s of having the rule about co-drivers and uh, pairings for the Bathurst and Sandown Enduros, isn't it? That's right. I mean, one of the things... Uh, just to get back to the qualifying thing that Peter was talking about then, I'd almost say why, if, you know, there was a period in those qualifying sessions where for 10 minutes there was no cars on the track and I felt that the cars that were going to qualify down the back, just put them out there, they can set a time and if you think you're going to be actually starting off the last couple of rows, save your tyres. You know, that could have been a real trump card in those races. But... The rule is there for a specific reason that, you know, if, if David was allowed to do the next, you know, it's potentially up until the Sandown 500 that Greg Murphy won't be back in that car. So uh, it's fully understandable why um, you can't keep the same guy in the car. Then also, from a Pepsi point of view, David Russell will not be driving that car anyway at Sandown and Bathurst. He'll be driving the Jack Daniels car um, alongside Rick Kelly. So, yes, uh, from a Pepsi point of view, you're kind of promoting a guy that's not going to be with you for those big races anyway. Um, also, from within the Kelly point of view, um, it would seem pretty obvious that they'll probably, you know, shift around their other endurance co-drivers, which um, Owen Kelly is going to be in the Pepsi car uh, for those races um, anyway in, in Sandown and Bathurst. So Owen will probably make an appearance, and, and maybe Tim Blanchard as well, or Daniel Gaunt, who's all part, when they're running a four-car team, you've got to, <laughs> you do have a bit of choice. To then go and try to find a name driver in between, well, all the good name drivers anyway are hooked up with uh, endurance drivers for other teams. So it's sort of like uh, not really wanting to give potentially the opposition some more race miles heading into those races as well. So your only alternative then is to, to really uh, go for a guy who's almost totally out of the loop and then with that, the experience in these cars means so much anyway that finding somebody who might have a high profile but not a lot of experience in these cars might not serve the purpose either. So it, it's a tough situation for the team because they're trying to also improve the speed of the cars overall because they have been struggling of late. And it's really unfortunate, the Sunday situation, because David got a good start. He was fighting up with a guy like Jason Bright, and Jason had the elbows out. And, you know, that's the thing of, you know, trying to give a little bit more room that he probably shouldn't be picking a fight. In that situation, 
in the um, the Dunlop series, probably the driver would have given him way, but it's a lot tougher game in the main series, and that's probably a lesson learned. But unfortunately, he's not going to get too many opportunities to learn too many lessons because he just won't get the miles in the race car. Mm. Now, of course, moving on from the racetrack, one story that is just, uh, well, it continues to grow and grow, and that is the dissatisfaction of teams, and it's not every team, of course, and we'll go into the reason why it's not every team uh, later, but there is dissatisfaction that the car of the future is not going to be what it was promised, Peter. Yes, that's correct. Uh, a lot of grumbles up and down pit lane about the, uh, the emerging costs of these things. The mandate and the whole reason for change was let's see if we can come up with something that's going to be cheaper to race, cheaper to build and cheaper to repair. And unfortunately, it's emerging that uh, the current designs and current process means that uh, they're really not going to save anything at all. And in fact, they're going to lose money on uh, some of their parts and and some of the the cars they've got at the moment, which will become redundant. There won't be a ready market for them apart from the uh, the discount bin uh, in in trying to just dump them at any price. Now, Ben, of course, you've been involved in teams. You've been involved in the media. You know how tight it is money-wise for these teams, even though they have had the Archer Capital payout. The stuff you're hearing is no different to anyone else, is it? It's just that. And it looks like it's starting to become the majority now that is saying, what the hell are we doing this for in these economic times? And with this much money, we're now getting back for our share of the company, which, of course, they voted to give up on. You sort of um, answer, you're posing the question with all the answers, with the question that... Everyone is wanting to have answered now. It's taking a lot longer than what was anticipated, and there's still a few technical things that have not been signed off, not completed. Um, you know, we're still talking about the final aero package and stuff like that. And then, no matter what happens, until a Nissan gets on the track, can then a, par- a true parity formula be put together um, between the three makes? So um, you've got guys build, excuse me, building cars. Um, to a point, but they've had to stop. There was some some times when some of the uh, uh, regulations have been updated, and uh, now there's talk that the uh, obviously the the, the uh, initial August date that everyone was aiming to be on the track um, is not going to be made by pretty much everybody. There are a couple of teams who said we could make it if everything arrives, which means a lot of the control components that uh, are going into these cars, um, the suppliers are talking that they might be arriving late. And then, you know, everybody is supposed to get everything at the same time. So how that's all going to work and happen, and then also in the middle of a championship battle, you know, it's where where the teams find time to do all all these, um, you know, building of new cars and and things like that. So um, to say that there's some grumblings, um, they're grumbling pretty, pretty, pretty firm, there was uh, a number of meetings that have been taking place in the last little while, and as much as it's it's a cons- uh, and the later it goes, the more expensive it's going to be because teams will have to uh, work double time to get things done. Um, if you want things that aren't signed off but have to be completed quickly, you're going to have to start paying a premium, and these are all the things that, like you say, wasn't supposed to be part of this plan. Whenever this new car was going to come, people accepted that there was going to be some um, uh, 
trouble in terms of you know the initial costs and stuff like that. But the on, ongoing uh, running of the cars is going to be cheaper. People are now questioning if that's really going to be the case, and um, and, it, and it's hard to, to say yes or no because again, a lot of these components have not come forward. They haven't been uh, signed off or completed. Some of the testing has been delayed. Um, the, the real thing could have been, look, let's just delay this another 12 months, but now they've got Nissan committed. That's that's now the the, uh, the the point that this whole car of the future has to hit the track next year. They can't delay it by 12 months because Nissan, say, Nissan um, who have been working as hard as anybody, that's the other thing, you know, they can't be stepping back from this thing either. So the teams are committed to making it happen. They just need to get um, the absolute final 100% sign-off on everything, design, supply, and also the delivery of a lot of these components before they really know what they've got, what they've spent, and when they can hit the racetrack with it. And, of course, it's the Hatfields and McCoys, isn't it, Peter? Because the teams that aren't involved in the tendering process for components or supplying components through other relationships in the uh, business world, they're the ones that are probably, well, they're the ones that we're hearing the most screams from because the guys who are at least supplying components through other businesses are going, well, we're making some money off this thing anyway, which will offset our costs. Yes, that's right. You don't want to be the, the very last point on the supply chain, and unfortunately those teams that are really just customers rather than uh, manufacturers or importers of any of these bits, um, that's where they are. Um, they have to wait for the specs, they have to wait for other people to uh, tender and win things, they have to wait for other people to design it. Um, it's an uncomfortable position to be in, but Ben is very correct that the, the calls of delaying it 12 months... Um, in a broader strategic sense of getting other manufacturers on board, it would be suicide. Um, if Nissan end up with their fingers burnt because they change the, the, the plans at the last minute and delay it 12 months, no other manufacturer is going to be interested. Even those people sitting on the sidelines, um, they're, they're just going to run away in disgust. Um, yeah, it's a tricky situation, and uh, really the only answer is for the, the technical specs to be uh, finalised as quickly as possible uh, with an eye to maintaining costs or reducing the costs. Um, you mentioned a little bit earlier about uh, how the teams have reduced their or sold off their ownership of the, of the championship. Um, what people need to join the dots with there is they got their lump sum because their dividends in the future are going to be less because they own less of the business. Um, it was just a cash flow uh, arrangement that they struck that they got the big lump sum in cash now to help them fund this car that was supposed to make racing cheaper. And that's the disconnect. They needed the racing to become cheaper because their dividends are going to be lower. Uh, and, you know, they haven't completed that, that full circle. We need to go into overtime here with the round table. So after the break, Peter Norton and Ben Beasley will continue and we'll look at Scafey. You've taken the V8 to the races. You watch the action on TV. Now read about them in V8X Magazine. V8X Magazine, dedicated to just one thing, V8 Supercars. 
showcasing some of today's best writers and award-winning photographers. V8X brings you all the news and in-depth interviews demanded by today's V8 supercar fans in one action-packed magazine. V8X, the number one magazine in V8 supercar coverage. Out now. Hi, I'm Rick Kelly. You're listening to V8 Insiders. Welcome back to the V8 Insiders, the white flag lap time, and uh, now we turn our attention to Mark Scaife. He's in the difficult position as he's the champion of this and now he's the target for a lot of the angst and and a lot of the complaints, which, rightly or wrongly, it's uh, one of those things that when you're lauded for the successes, you've got to be prepared to take some of the hits. But I, I think the other thing, Ben, is we look across the ditch and we saw what happened with V8 Super Touring. Sure, it's a one-make series, although they've got two body types, but they've got them running very, very cheaply in, in what would you'd see now as a quarter of the time that V8 supercars, who have the funding, the resources and the experience, have been able to roll out this program. You're absolutely spot on there, Craig. The, the New Zealand model, look, they've had some, some little issues in that, and then uh, in terms of some... Um, some engine overheating in there, a couple of little transmission issues. Could have learnt a lot from those guys, you know. And uh, like you say, they, they, the, the cars in New Zealand, they run a, a Chevy crate motor. They call them a crate motor because they all just come, everybody gets the same thing. Uh, you know, uh, the, an engine is worth around twenty or $25,000, you know, compared to a $100,000 V8 supercar engine. There's, there's a lot of controls in it. They've sort of borrowed a mixture of what the Australian car of the future is going and then what they had and pretty much picked based purely on economies in New Zealand of what they could afford. And that's probably the, the most obvious thing that V8 supercars should have more looked at. Not what is more relevant here, here and here, but what's it going to cost? Yeah. Everything should have always come back to what is this... Um, car in America for all it's it's a very expensive sport it's got a lot of people but people would be shocked to understand what a NASCAR in real costs is worth it's probably worth without an engine $50,000 because they build a lot of them there's a lot of economies in scale, of scale but the cars themselves there's not a lot to them and that's why they're able to run 12 or 14 chassis and stuff like that but they keep the rules very simple. They don't complicate things. These new cars we're getting in Australia underneath, you know, um, totally different transmission in them, totally different, you know, rear-end geometry and and even the moving of the fuel cell um, towards the middle of the car. They're just some of the more obvious things without some of the technical things underneath these and inside these cars, which are completely different. And people are trying to get their head around and what they're trying to and what is having to be built. And the other thing too in New Zealand, when you started this new championship, I think they had a goal of around 20 cars by the end of the season. I think the first event had maybe had 16 cars. We've got to start with 28 cars next year. That's a lot of cars to be built, and that's just cars that are going to be rolling. I know from the, from the Kelly point of view, they're talking about building six cars, six Nissans. Um, one is pretty much going to be just the test mule, and then they know they'll need to have at least one spare chassis to start the season. So you have a think about Triple Eight, which certainly have to have at least uh, a spare car. The HRTs of this world, the Ford Performance Racing, the Stone Brothers, you probably 
by the end of it talking at least 36 if not 40 chassis for the start of next year so you can that gives you another idea of why the teams are quite um uh getting up about you know these delays they're not just talking about building cars you know number one and and triple or double eight and triple eight whatever you know jamie might end up being next year it's a big commitment so um there's so many questions that have been asked scafe has taken on a huge responsibility with all this um and it was very easy three years ago to say oh yeah this is where we need to be in three years and three years has just gone like that Mm. and uh when you're also like i've said before in the middle of trying to campaign this year as well that's the other thing about this New Zealand competition was they had quite a bit of time to do this when they weren't necessarily competing as well, um, the way that their calendar works over there. So, I mean, by the time we finish in December and then have to be back on the racetrack in February or the first weekend of March, man, I, the guys who are going to build these, be building these race cars are going to be so busy. There are test days allocated for the second half of this year how many of those are actually going to be met and how many teams are going to get out on the track, man, it's uh, it's going to be tight. Peter, what have you been hearing about Mark Scafo? Uh, I haven't heard this in pit lane, but I've certainly heard it in the media in the media scrum and in the media packs and media centre, the commissioner for everything. Uh, yes. Um, yeah, there's a lot of uh, comments about Mark Scafo and his management abilities. Um, excellent driver, obviously. Uh, a very polished uh, leader in terms of the you know, public launches and you know, the boardroom presentations. Uh, yeah, he's a real figurehead that you can roll out. Uh, but um, I think the, the mistake that they appear to have made is uh, coming back to the old sort of business principle of um, you know, if you're umming and ahhing and you can't quite decide, sometimes not making a decision is the worst decision you can make. Um, you know, get on with it, um, make some decisions. Sure, you may make some wrong ones, but uh, you can always you know, alter some of these things a little bit down the track. Um, whereas, yeah, the, the uncertainty uh, creates its own sort of problems and it just sort of feeds on itself. Uh, so, yeah, interesting times ahead. Um, you'd almost have to read into this that uh, uh, the current cars may be eligible next year, um, but, of course, the, making sure that they're going to be uh, not as competitive as the new things just to allow some people, particularly those at the end of the supply chain, um, allow them to participate uh, in a delayed way. Mm. Well, guys... The, the, other, the other thing, too, with all that, if you have a look at NASCAR, for example, there is no committee. <laughs> they <laughs> just make the rules, and you've got to follow by it. Supercars, because the teams do have so much ownership, and there is so many... Uh, you know, there's there's boards, there's commissions, there's technical committee com- committees. Like Peter said, they really needed a person, whether that's Mark or somebody completely outside, to go, mate. And this guy is just going to make decisions, and you know, like it or low, that they're the decisions. Mm. No, I, co- too, I was too co- many, too many, too many uh, chefs in the kitchen for this mm. one. I know. I called for Barry Graham to be in charge of the whole thing when that uh, first came up because. He's probably built more race cars, admittedly, in the States than anyone in this country, and probably all of them combined with his uh, Richard Petty driving school. But uh, anyway, that uh, ship has sailed, my friend. 
Ben Beasley, always a great, uh, always great to catch up with you. And of course, we can catch up with all your reports on Fox Sport News in the lead up and uh, right throughout race weekends. Always great to be on. And thanks very much to Peter Norton, who of course was doubling up after being on Inside Motorsport this week. We'll return to a normal white flag lap and next week on the show as the checker flag waves over another edition of the V8 Insiders. Till next time round, keep smiling and bye for now. Join us next week for more V8 Insiders, only on v8x.com.au.